The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Mr. Will Allen. He is the co-founder of Cedar Circle Farm and research director at Regeneration Vermont. Mr. Allen grew up on a small farm in Southern California. He served in the Marine Corps. He earned his Ph.D. in anthropology, studying tropical forest farmers in Peru. He taught at the University of Illinois and later at the University of California. He began farming organically in the Santa Barbara area in 1968. He has served on the boards of California Certified Organic Farmers and the Ecological Farming Association. Mr. Allen founded the Sustainable Cotton Project in 1990 to help farmers learn how to grow organic cotton and convince garment makers to use organic fibers and reduce farmworker pesticide injuries. This organization convinced Patagonia, Esprit, Levi's, Marks and Spencer, Nike, and other garment makers to use organic fibers. In 2000, he took over the management of Cedar Circle Farm in East Thetford, Vermont, along with his wife, Kate Dusterberg. Their activist efforts resulted in the creation of a coalition for labeling GMO products in Vermont. They were successful, and Vermont became the first state in the union to pass a GMO labeling law in 2014. In 2016, Mr. Allen transitioned his focus to co-found a new nonprofit organization called Regeneration Vermont with a goal of redirecting Vermont agriculture towards regenerative methods that protect and enhance the natural environment, produce healthy food products, and provide economic justice to farmers and farm workers, promote animal welfare, and implement climate change remediation through an understanding of and commitment to healthy living soils. He is also the author of a terrific book that I have on my desk titled The War on Bugs. It was published by Chelsea Green in 2008, and it's an excellent expose of the chemical industry's relentless efforts to sell their toxic products and the recurring waves of resistance by consumers, farmers, and environmentalists who don't want toxins in their food and their environment. Whew. Welcome, Mr. Allen. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. You have such a long history in working to protect our environment and public health. I wanted you to be with me today. Well, let's start with just a basic question. What led you to farming? Well, I grew up on a small farm in Southern California, but I vowed that I would never be a farmer. And then I went off to college and got my degrees and taught school and and then my kids came down with uh, muscular dystrophy, which is a degenerative muscle disease. And we thought that maybe the way people were farming around us and that we were farming might be contributing to that. So we started researching chemicals and felt like, well, even if this wasn't the cause, it probably wasn't the best thing to have that in their environment. So we started trying to figure out how to farm organically. And there weren't any guidebooks at the time. This was in the 60s. And I mean, Rachel Carson was saying, oh, we shouldn't eat chemically contaminated food, but that meant you had to grow it yourself or find 
a small farmer somewhere who could supply it. So we started working on it and had a lot of help from a wide variety of sources, the university and agricultural extension and even neighboring chemical farmers and and chemical companies. They actually, you know, loaned us their equipment and would clean it out for us. So, you know, people who actually want to have a clean agriculture, whether they're farmers or suppliers, you know, I mean, you can sell products to anybody and, you know, why not sell clean products? So Exactly. Well, I'm curious to know how you got from California to Vermont. Almost 15 years we were working on cotton, trying to get cotton farmers to switch away from chemicals and try to get clothing companies to use that cotton. And we were successful, but we mostly wanted to develop a model, a local production for local use, community-focused model, because one of the things we've lost in this country is community. And you can have those communities, whether you're in rural areas or urban areas. If you go to Cuba, there are organic farms in every community in Havana, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes five and six of them. And so we felt like we really wanted to move on from trying to change cotton, which we're still interested in that, but we wanted to focus on local production for local use and try to use that farm as both a a research farm and an activist farm, right? Mm -hmm. So where we were getting to do a lot of research and development that we didn't have time to do with cotton as much as we'd like to have done. And so, and then we found a farm in East Stepford where the fellow who had been farming it had a heart attack and wanted to sell the farm and seemed like the right farm for research and education and trying to make the farm be a destination, you know, and then you can really teach people and because they think it's their farm and we want it to be their farm, right? So that's, that was the thing that drew us here and that's pretty much why we moved. Yeah. Well, if I could sum your work up in one category, I think I would file you under agricultural historian because you've got so much experience, not only in helping to write the first organic handbook for the California Certified Organic Farmers, but also in your work in trying to get people organized to support a cleaner, less toxic way of farming. And in our conversation before we did our interview, you told me about some agricultural history that I had no idea about. I told you that I had been at the Senate Judiciary hearings where the major agribusinesses were arguing to come together to allow their merger. So Monsanto and Bayer, Dow and DuPont, Syngenta and ChemChina. And you said, oh, Monsanto and Bayer had been together and Bayer had ties to Nazi Germany. Tell me what you know about that. Well, Bayer, BASF, and Horst, the three largest chemical corporations in the world at the beginning of the 20th century, aligned in 1904 in the first chemical cartel, which is often referred to as baby IG Farben. After the First World War, those three chemical corporations, dominated largely by Bayer, because Bayer was at the time the wealthiest, and Bayer... You know, after the Second World War, those chemical companies couldn't sell their products, and they didn't own the patents. They owned the processes, but they didn't own the patents. And so they had to share those patents with companies in foreign countries. And so the companies they chose in the United States were Bayer and Miles Laboratory. And 
Bayer made a combination with Monsanto that was called Mobe. And Mobe was founded in the early 1950s following the Second World War, and it was a vehicle really for Bayer to protect a discovery that they had made during the Second World War and slightly before the Second World War of methyl isocyanates, which were the ingredient that was in nerve poison chemicals, or one of the ingredients that is in nerve poison chemicals, and was the ingredient in the gas leak that killed so many people, like 200,000 people were blinded and 8,000 people were killed in Bhopal. Right. And so here is this company that was really one of the main contributors to Nazi Germany. Actually, the chairman of the board of Bayer was in the Nazi party, and they were not only one of the biggest contributors, but they built a concentration camp and a chemical plant right near Auschwitz. And they tested all the chemicals on those concentration camp victims. And yet, after the Second World War, Bayer executives only spent four years in jail, and no one was in prison longer than that, and they went right back to work. And they went back to work with companies like Monsanto. And so here is this history of these chemicals cooperating. And another cooperator in that system was Standard Oil. Standard Oil had a 25-year contract with IG Farben starting in 1925, running all the way to 1950. They canceled it at the end of the war because of pressure in this country for them to cancel it. But that's how close these companies were. The chemical companies that are in this country were aligned with chemical companies in Nazi Germany. Hmm. It's these points from history that I think are so important when we look at these mergers today. So Monsanto and Bayer then split, and now they want to come back together and be one of probably the largest seed and chemical manufacturers globally. And there you are in Vermont with a nice organic farm. What kind of impact will these mergers have on small organic farmers across our country? Well, we don't get our seeds for the most part from them. We try to get our seeds from suppliers that are not connected into this international global seed market, right? The big problem is is that Monsanto owns Seminus, which is the largest vegetable seed inventory in the world. But people are saving their own seeds. People are trading seeds. A lot of organic farmers would rather grow open-pollinated seeds. That means those seeds that are not hybrids, right? Right. They would rather grow open-pollinated heirloom seeds and try to build up the quality and the productivity of those varieties instead of depending upon the seed from Monsanto and all these chemical companies. But the world, and especially, don't forget that these companies mostly control commodity seeds. Yeah. You know, it's only the, these vegetable seeds that they've taken over recently that have been a problem. They mostly control corn, cotton, soy, canola, rice, wheat, sugar, right? Those are the commodity crops that they control the seeds in. All the rest of the seeds, a lot of the, those seeds are really, you know, in play around the world. Like we have seed saver exchanges at all of our farm meetings, right? And people are trading seeds and saying, oh, this variety improved for me. And like we have much better heirloom tomatoes in 2016 than we had in 2010 mm-hmm. because people started playing around with them, right? Right. And then people started sharing seed and then the seed companies 
that we work with got a hold of those seeds and now they're supplying them. Right. It's interesting with regard to the commodity seed. I interviewed Eric Herm, who is, well, he tries to grow organic cotton in Texas, and he told me that it is becoming increasingly more difficult because of the spraying with dicamba, which, of course, is an herbicide that is designed to be used with these genetically engineered cotton seeds or cotton plants. So we've got a problem with drift, both pollen drift as well as pesticide drift, and I wondered if that wasn't a concern with you in Vermont. I know you've got a lot of dairy there. Cows eat alfalfa. There's a GMO alfalfa. Do you find any resistance among farmers in your state against this kind of genetically engineered crop that's so vital to dairy farmers? Well, um, one of the ways that they sold the genetically modified crop to the farmers, and the main way is that this is the best seed on the market. You're going to get the highest yields, and you're not going to have to do very much work because, you know, you can apply these herbicides, glyphosate, on the plant, and, you know, that's pretty much your weed control, and that's really the name of the game in corn, right, and, and most of the other commodity crops. If you can take care of the weeds, you can pencil out, right? So... Their argument was, well, we you can take care of the weeds, and, you know, this is how you do it. Well, you know, it's cost them more and more all the time because they didn't really switch to the GMO-recommended chemicals like glyphosate. They kept using the same old herbicides, right? And now those herbicides are starting to show problems where, you know, the weeds are becoming resistant. And so a lot of their systems are like, kind of in crisis, you know, they're not getting very much money for their milk, and the pests aren't controlling the weeds, and, you know, the soil is degenerating because they're not taking care of it properly, right? And a lot of them know it. A lot of them want to switch to organic, and the big problem is is there's not a big enough market right now. Like if Ben & Jerry's went, if Cabot Cheese went, there'd be a local market, and we could probably have 100 more organic farmers within a year. So will it... Will it take consumer pressure, do you think, to move these companies to choosing organic? Well, that's what we're trying to do. See, I mean, we've done the legislative thing. We've done the, you know, passing bills and all of this stuff. And, like, we think it's wonderful building coalitions around that. But coalitions right now, the coalition we put together, like, 20 or 24, I think, now different groups in Vermont that really want Vermont to change towards a – a system like Denmark and Bhutan have, where you're on the path to organic. You're not going to be organic next week or next year, but you're on a path to organic, and you're incentivizing that kind of program. Because right now what we're doing, to be honest, is we're incentivizing the other kind of program. We're incentivizing CAFO dairies, all the cows locked up, enormous pollution going into the lake, labor abuse, cow abuse, that's what we're paying for now with our tax dollars is subsidized dairy, right? Why shouldn't our tax dollars go towards incentivizing a change? That model has failed. Farmers are going bankrupt. The only people making money are Ben and & Jerry's and Cabot Cheese in Vermont, right? The farmers are going bankrupt. And so we're trying to change that over. We're trying to get Ben & Jerry's to change. And so anybody that gets a chance to call Ben & Jerry's and say, I want organic ice cream. I don't want toxic ice cream. I don't want cow abuse. I don't want labor abuse. I don't want farmers to go bankrupt. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what's happening with Ben and Jerry's and Cabochies and Land Lakes and all those companies are making huge amounts of money. Ben and Jerry's six hundred billion dollar company for ice cream. Wow. <laughs> you know, can't we spend some money on your supply chain and fixing it? You know, that's our argument. Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Will Allen. He is co-founder of Cedar Circle Farm and research director at Regeneration Vermont, and he's also the author of The War on Bugs. Well, Mr. Allen, I have to mention something here, and that is when I see the labels of Ben & Jerry's and Cabot Creamery, I don't have Green Mountain yogurt in my market, but I can tell you that even at my dietetic association meetings, Cabot Creamery is there. And the image that these companies portray is one that matches your description of what you want. So clean environment, happy cows, kind of a, a hippie brand. And yet what you're telling me, it's so similar to the book you wrote, of course, on pesticides. It's the same kind of propaganda and marketing fooling the consumer into thinking that they are buying something that is quote-unquote green when actually they're contributing to the $600 million profits of a company that is abusing the land, the workers, and the animals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. We're in dialogue with them. We try to be collaborative. When we found out all this stuff, as we peeled back all of the dairy industry, everything we looked at looked terrible. I mean, we couldn't believe that it was still being incredibly funded by our money, right? And when we went to Ben and Jerry's, they said, well, you know, our farmers don't really want to change. And then we found somebody that was on the policy advisory board of Unilever. And all of a sudden, Ben and Jerry said, oh, let's talk again. And so we started talking with them and, you know, we just laid it all out and said, look, we know that we can fix this. I mean, you guys are in trouble right now. And you know, we don't want to trash the Vermont brand because we depend on it. People come to our farm because of it's Vermont, you know, right. and, and that brand belongs to all of us. And so we want to fix it because we think that the way you're farming is trashing the Vermont brand, right? And so that's our strategy. And the other strategy is like Vermont, all kinds of little things like to be first, right? And Vermont has been first at a lot of stuff, first to ban slavery, first to create civil unions, first to have a GMO labeling law and a whole bunch of first to ban fracking and right to die, all of these things, you know, they think they're first in a lot of stuff. And so our argument is let's be first in this. Let's be first to be organic. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And I think your strategy to collaborate is brilliant because I agree with you. I think that if we come together, I think we all want the same thing at the end of the day. I mean, who doesn't want healthy kids? Who doesn't want clean water to drink? And your farm... And your work, your educational work, can help give farmers a way out and show them a path. Because I think maybe you hear the same thing. It's like, well, you know, this is great, people saving seed, people farming organically, but you've heard the line, this is not the way we're going to feed the world. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, that is totally fabricated advertising. You know, that's I mean, it's ridiculous. Like right now we have twice as much food as we need to feed the world. Forty percent of the food we're throwing in the landfill. I mean, hello. You know, we got a ton of food right now that we're not even using, right? And then the other thing is, is we're already producing an enormous amount. And people say, well, how come people are starving then? 
because the food brokers would rather dump the food, and they're doing it with milk right now. They dump like over 50 million gallons this year, oh. right? They'd rather dump the milk and take a tax write-off than feed poor people. That's reality. We all know it. You know, hunger isn't caused by lack of food. It's caused by lack of heart. You know, we, I mean, you know, we'd rather dump the food than take care of people that are starving, kids that are starving, right? And so that's not the problem. And the other thing is, is that most of the industrial agriculture produces animal feed. Hello? Corn, cotton, soy. Mm. Cotton feed is like 60% of the yield of a cotton field. Only 30% is fiber. 60% is seed and 80% of that feed goes right straight into dairy cows as raw seed, right? Because it's a fat enhancer. And so like most of our agricultural production is for animal feed. In the rest of the world, most of agricultural production is for human feed, right? Mm -hmm. So first of all, our land management is all wrong. You could feed the world easy all the vegetables they would ever need on what we feed animals, right? It's such a badly organized system, but it's because they created these subsidies years ago, and, like, it's difficult to break them, and it's difficult to get out of them, and we're stuck with a bunch of conservative lawmakers from farm states that will not change it because their constituency doesn't want to change it because they're getting a subsidy check. And so, right. and that's all feed. It's Think about it. I mean, most of our acreage is feed for animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, corn, cotton, soy, yeah. canola. A lot of the rice hulls, wheat, oats, barley, you know, maybe 8 to 10% of our land mass is for growing food for directly for people. And all the rest is growing food for animals. And the meat is of a small part of our diet. It's like, you know, in this country, it's like 12 ounces a day. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about, well, can we feed the world? Hello, let's just start looking at the system of ag you have and... Of course you can feed the world. Look at India's. You know, they actually have a 42% surplus in grain. You know, and they have a billion people on the same land mass as we do. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we can launch from that topic to one that is related, and that is the nonprofit organization called Regeneration Vermont. And tell me how that grew out of the GMO labeling law, you know, what happened with that? And then how did Regeneration Vermont come about? Well, we have been working for like the last 10, 12 years on climate and agriculture issues because most of our discussion over the last 25 years is when we talk about climate has been on emissions and fossil fuels. And, you know, we're totally supportive and we salute 350.org for all of their work on waking the American public up to the climate change reality of increasing emissions. And, you know, but we always felt like, well, nobody's talking about agriculture, and yet agriculture is producing almost half of the greenhouse gases, right? And so we started thinking, well, let's start getting people into a dialogue. So in, like, 2006 and seven, we started giving presentations about climate change and agriculture. And at that point, we thought, well, maybe 25 to 30% of the greenhouse gases are coming from agriculture. And then more and more as we read and more as we studied, we realized like maybe as much as 40 to 50% of all the greenhouse gases 
you know, in the world are coming from agriculture. And we think about it, well, four-fifths of the occupied area that is arable is has animals on them, right? And mm-hmm. so we just started looking at it and saying, well, let's try to see if we can create some, one, buzz about it, and two, if we can start doing some programs around it. And so the program we decided on is like, you know, there's been this movement for a long time in organic to be regeneratively organic. There's laws on the book that require farmers to increase their soil organic matter, which is 58% carbon, so you're constantly increasing carbon if you follow the rules, right? And so we've been pushing for a long time what farmers should be making sure they have cover crops and making sure that they kill as little as possible and plow as little as possible and try to minimize the damage to your soil, which results in a loss of carbon to the atmosphere and the ocean. So we started talking about it and realizing, wow, we needed a local campaign on this because we're part of a group called Regeneration International, which is like uh, members from over 30 countries from around the world that are trying to regenerate farm and forest lands where they live, so and ranch lands as well. And so we decided to start a chapter in Vermont called Regeneration Vermont and focus on trying to address the loss of carbon in vegetable farms. So we're experimenting a lot with no-till and minimum till and interseeding of cover crops in your cash crop Mm -hmm. to try to keep the ground covered all the time. And see, the way you sequester carbon out of the atmosphere in the oceans is through photosynthesis, because photosynthesis pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and secretes it and sugars into the soil, which microorganisms and earthworms and plants use, right? So we decided, well, the two things that we wanted to do were vegetable production and dairy, because dairy is the biggest deal in Vermont. Eighty percent of Vermont agricultural lands are devoted to dairy, a million acres. And that dairy supports Ben and & Jerry's and Cabot cheese and Green Mountain Greek yogurt. So we felt like, well, if we could get those groups to try to change, we would, could have an impact on the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture, because we argued that agriculture was the biggest generator of greenhouse gases in Vermont. And so we then we started writing papers about Vermont agriculture and kind of taking it apart and showing how damaging it was at every level from the point of view of the high use of herbicides, pesticides, and synthetic fertilizers. Exactly. Like uh, really rapid burnout of the cows within like, by the time the cow's five years old, they're on their way to the feedlot or on their way to the butcher shop. And we found out that 57% of all the beef in the country comes from dairy cows and because they're burning them out so fast. And then we found out that there were huge labor abuses and there's enormous water pollution. 79% of the water pollution in the state, the state's most important lake, Lake Champlain, is coming from dairy. So we just started kind of taking dairy apart and then using that as a lever to have talks with Ben and Jerry's and the Secretary of Agriculture and the new governor about, and the legislature have invited us to talk on how we can change Vermont agriculture because it's not working for farmers. It's only working for the processors in these big companies like Ben and Jerry's and Cabot. Well, Mr. Allen, I want to thank you very much. Unfortunately, our time is up. But you have planted so many important seeds, 
And I will make sure to have links to Regeneration Vermont, and specifically I will have a link to your excellent article called The Real Cost of Cheap Food. And we'll get people on board, give us some action steps on those websites, and we will follow your lead. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. Well, it's my pleasure. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Mr. Allen, for all of the work you're doing for the Earth. Thank you.